Well, it was my first revisited on Conversations of Inspiration, and it was with the magnificent Johnny Bowden. 32 years he has been building Bowden, and it was that time that I got to sit back and absorb life-learnt lessons from someone I hold in such high regard when it comes to a brand. Johnny spoke not only about the brand and the values that have seen him through these three decades, but also the fact that now the US is an even bigger part to Johnny's world than ever before. How should we look at sustainability when it comes to fashion and what are the hurdles founders have to go through? And how do we break through when it gets to digital marketing? How do we grab people's attention? It was my first revisited and my goodness, I'm so happy it was with Johnny. The wisdom and joy and his big red glasses he shared with me today, I'll remember always. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Johnny. Hello, Holly. It is a pleasure to see you again. This is amazing. You are my first revisited guest on Conversations of Inspiration, and it had to be you, Johnny. Well, that's very scary, and I'm not sure whether that's good or bad, but I'm all yours. I'm all yours. Well, I think it's good because you won't believe it, but the last time we spoke, I was in your office. We're doing it virtually today in 2018, and quite a bit has changed since then. Obviously, Brexit, pandemic, Bowdoin turned 30. And firstly, on that, huge congratulations. You turned 30 again. Well, it seems only yesterday that I started the business. So you're only as old as you feel. I'm feeling my age (laughs) in certain respects, but not in others. And not in others. Tell me, how did you celebrate? Was it a big deal for you? Well, I'm going to talk about you, but maybe for the business to, to hit this milestone. We had a special range We had a swanky dinner, but it was kind of business as usual, really. As I said, the problem with fashion is you're only as good as your last range, and so you can never really sit back and relax. But it was lovely to make it to 30. To make it to 30. And in the same year, you turned 60, another huge milestone as well. And last time we spoke in 2018, you spoke about, and I get this very, very much, you grow and evolve within your business, you know, as a person. And you really have grown with Bowdoin. It's turned 30, you turned 60. Do you feel that you're still on that journey? What's your perspective of this journey? Well, I mean, it is quite extraordinary how how things change very quickly. I think one of the, the hard things as a entrepreneur is getting the balance right between letting go and delegating. And it's a constant issue. 
I mean, it's a very, very long story, but basically, I feel you're either in or you're out, and you can't really right. be half half in. You in there, you can't be half pregnant. You can't be half in, and I am very much in. And I think that's the way to be. I mean, either I still I'm still very involved, or I would leave entirely. Right, that's interesting mm. because we we hear, don't we? I mean, you, you and I know people around the industry who have that sort of slightly in role. You know, they're a chairman or they sit on a board or they are creative director, but they're not the CEO. They're not. Do you know what I mean? They don't have their hands on the actual business. What's what do you feel about that then? Yes, I mean there are certain aspects of the business that I have very little involvement in, and I because I'm useless at them, and I've let go of those. Um, but the areas in which I am involved, I have always been involved. Those are the ones that I am unwilling to let go of and I've tried to let go of them and it hasn't been a great success so I am still very much involved in them yeah that's that's fascinating because I think there is a sort of notion that sometimes small businesses that are listening people who are dreaming listening might think that the sort of the pinnacle of their career is when they can step away you know and people do all the stuff and they don't have to do that I tend to say to them that is a pipe dream. It's not reality, really. If you are the founder of the business, you're going to need to be in, in. Yes. I mean, it's very much, you can't do everything and you need to let go of the things that you're not so good at or not so interested in. And you need to find people you can really trust to do those things. And, you know, thankfully, I have found lots of people who can do things that I'm rubbish at so it finance hr warehouse you know operations and i've got a great team there but the areas in which i've always been interested in i was referring to those areas those are the areas where yes you know you can only have one vision you can't have two visions in a business and a lot of people have come in and have challenged my vision and you know they it's fine to be challenged, but ultimately, mm-hmm. I have to make those decisions, and it just is best for for the business, and you know, also selfishly for my satisfaction. And if I yeah. if I were to let go of those, that's what I meant. If you let go of those things, then you might as well leave the business. So tell me, Bowden's always been such a strong sense of being Bowden, right? The identity. And this is what you've got your hands on, that DNA of the brand, the personality that shines through. And when we last spoke, it shone through pages of the catalogues. And now you've done this phenomenal job of keeping that alive over three decades. But the landscape has completely changed in the five years that we have spoken and this rise of digital. And I read a quote from you and you said, now I have to design for smartphone screens. Yes. How do you feel about Well, it is very much work in progress. And I don't think anybody has really nailed this. I mean, we have some success, but there are times where I feel we haven't got the balance right. And the problem with catalogues is not that they are a bad thing in themselves, but they are a very expensive way. There are two problems with catalogues, a very expensive way of recruiting new customers. And also, a lot of millennials don't really look at them. No. But they are still very important in generating loyalty 
And it's still a lovely way to relax. And it's interesting, despite mm-hmm. all the talk about the end of catalogs, a lot of brands have recently reintroduced them. You know, it, they do work, but they're, they're mm. not nearly as effective as they used to be. In the old days, you know, we could rent lists, we could mail hundreds of thousands yes. of people and paper was cheap and you only needed a response rate of, you know, 1% to break even. And those yes. days have gone. Also, the GDPR legislation means, you know, it's harder to get hold of names and addresses. It's a very, that's for the dinosaurs, that way of building a business. So you've got to recruit digitally. But if you take the catalogue away, as we have done to certain people, they get sad. You know, they really miss it. And we Mm. made a lot of mistakes in that area. Tell me about, I'm fascinated, Johnny, what's that balance? Because when I read, you know, now I've got to design for the smartphone, you know, my heart sinks and I get it, you know, not in the high street, 90% of sales are done on the smartphone. I'm building Holly & Co. You've got Bowdoin. I understand all of this, but you know what? My heart sinks that the customer experience is through this sort of five inches by three inches experience, you know, that that's what a brand has almost been minimalized into. You're absolutely right. It's really hard. It is something that we are, we feel we're not doing well enough and we need to generate loyalty through other means. But catching people's attention is increasingly hard. I mean, people are so, you know, people are such total tarts now. They just, you know, they're so used to being mm. bombarded and therefore your your product's got to be more distinctive, more interesting. But the upside is, you know, if you get it right, you can really scale it because you can get that image out to so many more people so quickly. Mm. But it's definitely harder now, definitely harder. Yeah, it's hard. And I think you make such a great point. It's catching your customer's attention. And actually, it's, you know, right now we're talking about digital, but ultimately that's the holy grail. That is the holy grail. Do you think it's tougher now for new brands? You know, you sit on a 30-year legacy. Now, if you're starting a business, this is your swimming pool that you swim in. You've never known any different What do you think about those merging brands? I think the irony is that actually it's easier to set up a business now because you you don't need the huge cost of producing. Well, I'm talking specifically about the only area I know about, which is selling clothes remotely. You now can just take a photograph put it up on a website, Instagram, social, whatever, and take some orders. I mean, it's in so many ways, the things that are causing you and I grief is the opportunity for the new brands. And it's really, you know, if Mm -hmm. I, we often review our competition. And if I were to look, compare the list now of our, who our customers are looking at with the list when I set up my business, there's virtually no crossover. I mean, all those businesses have gone under. And now, I don't know about you, but I'm constantly, uh, I see something on Instagram or somebody tells me about a new brand I've never heard of. And I look at it and think, crikey, that's amazing. That's some lovely stuff. Then, you know, I was rather rudely saying that our customers are tarts, but that's exactly the same way they were tarty when I set up the business. You know, they mm. saw something a bit different. 
and they said, let's give it a go. And that's how, you know, I'm grateful for that. And similarly now, I'm constantly, mm-hmm. we are constantly being challenged by interesting new brands. You know, that's competition, that's capitalism for you. And it's mm-hmm. the customer is, is yeah. the beneficiary. Yeah. And tell me, we last spoke a while ago, but we have lived through this time of COVID. How did Bowdoin navigate the pandemic? Because I think, you know, it must have been for the fashion industry. I mean, obviously, if I speak Mm-mm. to a chef, Ghastly. you know, it's a, yeah, yeah. another yeah. type of conversation. But, you know, I can imagine that this was a it wasn't just the logis- well, logistics you'd sorted, but it was the change on what Absolutely. we were wearing. What happened at well, that moment? I think, as you pointed out, you know, most women buy clothes for parties and holidays and work. And those three activities disappeared. <laughs> so we had to yeah. scale back very quickly our commitments in those areas. And our suppliers were great, actually, and they understood. And we were able to get out of quite significant quantities. But we were also able to sell more. We did more awful word, loungewear, not my favourite word. but Yes, yeah. I've heard you don't like this word as well. But anyway, you know, <laughs> we, we have an amazing warehouse and they kept going. We also have the children's wear business, which did very well. Children were at home, they didn't have to go to school, so they want more clothes. And in America, they don't wear school uniform anyway. And people had a mm. bit of money. They weren't spending on travel and going out. So it wasn't a total disaster. I mean, obviously horrible for, for many other, you know, we, we were badly hit, but it wasn't life-threatening as it was for some poor people. Life-threatening. Yeah, yeah. But I heard, I mean, at the beginning, though, sales fell off a cliff, I read. Yes, and yes. you did have to make, am I right, 200 people redundant? And Yes, we did. I should have mentioned that. It was. Yeah. You almost had this, the two sides of the coin you almost had, you know, that shock yes. to the system. But almost yes. as it went on, slightly a new world was emerging for you, so to speak. Yes, you're right. But it has been a difficult few years, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, Partly external, partly COVID, partly Brexit, and some mistakes of our own making. Yeah. And I read that you think that office dressing trend has gone for good and that the working wardrobe that we almost had prior to COVID has changed forever. Why do you think that that is? Yes. I mean, I think simply more people are working from home. I think dress codes have relaxed. But interestingly, we've seen some more structured, formal product doing quite well. There's a trend away from... Loungewear. Print, (laughs) loungewear. And and so there are trends that have reasserted themselves. But I think generally speaking, people don't adhere to uniforms in the way that they used to. And that's great. You know, people can be themselves, wear what they want. But there's still bastions of conservatism. I mean, I sometimes I go to, I mean, certainly for men, and I, you know, you go to some dinners or clubs and you think, yes. crikey, you know, people are still looking like they, dressing like, like it was <laughs> 1990, you know, men in suits and Yes, bad teeth the whole... and bad breath. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah it's really depressing. <laughs> that's not my, you know, I, I, that's one thing I'm very, re- I'm very pleased to not 
to be doing that, being in that world anymore. Do you wear your, for the listeners, Johnny's wearing these amazing red rim, rimmed glasses. And do you wear those to the stuffy? This is my Elton John, my Elton John. Your Elton John look. Yes, I get told off and people can't understand. I mean, a lot of people are very conservative and they love a uniform and, you know, uh, bully for them. But that's not my style. It's not our style, really. That's not for you. But we are selling, there are some, you know, more calmer, easier mm. styles that we are selling because I think a lot of women don't want to have to think too hard. I mean, one of the reasons why men love wearing suits, they haven't got to think. Is it put on a suit, you know, and yes. job done. I mean, yes. I was I feel so sorry for women sometimes when Sophie, my wife, always have this joke, you know, every evening as we're sort of sad old people now, we don't go out as much as we When we do go out, we either bicycle or take a taxi to somewhere and I say we got to leave and we, we got to be there at eight o'clock we must leave at half past seven and I'm ready and Sophie comes downstairs and she says do I look all right I said darling you look lovely you look lovely she said I don't believe you I don't believe you she goes upstairs and and changes again and we're late and I get sort of cross and but it's such a, you know, I promise you it's a ritual that is, you know, played out every time. I think up and down the land. It is. Women, they need reassurance and they don't know. They really want it to feel right. Yeah. And I think going back to what you said earlier, the thing about a, a work dress is that you put it on and you just accessorize it with a fun scarf and you feel a million dollars. But now I think there's more pressure on yeah. women because they're set, the rules have gone. And the rules have gone and also the rise of Instagram, the rise of digital, you know, Ugh. before you used to put on yeah. something and it's only you and whoever you meet that day would yeah. see. Now it's almost like, You're actually, judged, I just need to you check. You're being in judged case, all the time, aren't you? Judged yeah. or it does it look right? How did I wear that last week? Yeah. Tell me, we spoke about your business during this period of time and you just touched on lovely Sophie, your wife. Yeah. How was that time for you personally? Because I read you spent part lockdown <laughs> in Dorset with your family. Yeah. And that you did, like myself, it was the first time I'd ever worked from home, ever. And it did give me a moment to press pause slightly. Even though I'd never worked harder in my life, somehow I was rediscovering something personally about myself. I don't know if you had a similar experience. I'm afraid I didn't. I absolutely hated it. No. <laughs> I'm very, you know, I, I, we had a whiteboard. My daughter is a teacher. One of my daughters, well, she was a teacher and she was teaching in the kitchen and we had a whiteboard in the kitchen and there were, the columns were the five members of the family and then the rows were the various tasks. So that would be uh, shopping, cooking, emptying the dishwasher, walking the dog, washing up, and I ended up doing, you know, two thirds of them. I was the only person who emptied the dishwasher. I was the only person who took the dog for a walk. <laughs> I admit I loved doing the shopping. I loved doing the washing up. So that's partly of my own making. But I just thought this is, after a while, I thought we need our space, really. So our <laughs> warehouse was busy up in Leicester. I was running a business, employing people. So I did travel. We did a a little bit of work for the government. So it was kind of, I considered myself a key worker and I traveled. And to be honest, all these people who discovered a new hobby, that goes back to my earlier comment, you know, either in or you're right. You can't. Yeah. I had lots of people's livelihoods in my hands and I had to look after them. Yeah. 
and yeah. keep our customers happy. As yeah, well. absolutely. Absolutely. I think I was also referring to, for me, it was the hour maybe I would have spent getting in somewhere rather than adding the hour because you were already burning the midnight oil because yes. everything had just gone to shit, basically, yes. hadn't it? Actually, getting out in nature for me was a good thing. And that has stayed with me. Yes, I was being a bit pompous. I mean, I we are very lucky. We have a farm, a little a farm in Dorset. And I now... My lifestyle has changed. I do work from home more and that's that's a lovely thing to be able to do. Yes. But I equally, I love the office. I love being surrounded yeah. by people. I'm more productive here. And I think actually, you're right, it has enabled people to achieve a slightly better life balance. But, you know, there is a problem for, I think some people are the majority of people are great, but a lot of, not a lot, but there are people who slightly take the mickey and it does make life a bit yeah. harder. You know, meetings are harder to organise. Yeah. And I think you, you know, yeah. certain issues that are... Absolutely. Certain issues that are absolutely fine Couldn't done remotely, more. but there are others, you know, meetings face-to-face -face are more effective for certain other things. Absolutely. Creativity, Johnny. I mean, you know, getting people together, bashing ideas around, things that only happen when you're in person were taken away from us. And actually, this is now the battle I think all businesses are going through, which is, you know, we want all of that. And we want a bit of what we had at COVID yes. time. And we've re maybe readjust our balances, but we've got a business to run and we want you to be happy. So it's a it's a real mix yes. of things. I was going to say, I mean, the, there is a slight irony that, that in fact, the designers are very productive remotely. They don't have this long commute. They are able to draw and get inspiration. You know, as, long as, as long as they've got a good internet connection, there's lots they can do remotely, but there are other parts of their job that are much better done. So and I think for every department, there is only, I think, IT and finance. I mean, those are the areas where they need to be in the office the least. Yeah, I think it varies very much. But I do think I've noticed we were, there were a lot of people who said, oh, we've got to force somebody to come in. And I was, I sometimes thought that. But actually, you can't. Times have changed and people now expect a more flexible thing. But actually, what's nice is that we have, I've seen a lot of people are coming back. They like coming in. You yes. know, it's a nice warm office. They get a nice subsidized canteen and free fruit and free tea and coffee. And they can have a bit of a laugh. You know, you just do go a bit bonkers on your own. And I think particularly, I did feel so sorry for the younger lot who, you know, mm. in, in tiny flats and they didn't have a living room and, and you, you know, they were doing kind of zooming in from their bedroom. I mean, it just wasn't, it really wasn't much fun. No, I, it completely wasn't. As we reach the end of this series, our guests have shared their incredible stories with us and all of them have shown fearlessness, bravery and creative innovation along the way. At Dell Technologies, they share the belief there isn't just an innovator in some of us, there's an innovator in every single one of us. And it's why they, together with their partner Intel, are working hard to make their technology more powerful, simpler to use, and easier to access so you can do more incredible things. From empowering female entrepreneurs through Dell's Women's Entrepreneur Network, 
or having tech advisors on hand for you to call who will help you work out the best solutions for your own business needs. As well as all that, this year they have generously offered 6% off your next laptop or desktop computer using the code HOLLY6. As lead partners with the Holly & Co family, their support is invaluable in powering all of our business advice and supporting you on your business journey. To find out more information about how Dell can support your small business, head to dell.co.uk forward slash smallbiz, biz spelt B-I-Z. And before you go, don't forget to head over to holly.co forward slash Dell to enter our tech in a box competition, where we have partnered with Dell Technologies and Intel to give six lucky winners the opportunity to win a brand new Dell XPS 13 laptop and a whole host of small business goodies to help your business thrive, worth over £1,000. So what are you waiting for? Go and enter and best of luck. Now back to our conversation of inspiration. Tell me about America. You hinted on America, and I know that you've seen enormous growth for Bowdoin mm, in the US, yes. and it's a notoriously hard market to crack, and yet your growth there is incredibly strong. Tell me about this move over there, and 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 I, I want to, at the end of this, ask you about what tips you would have for someone trying to break in. But yeah. tell me about what your experience has been. Well, I mean, very briefly, we... About 20 years ago, we noticed that we had lots of customers in America who had found us without us trying very hard. So we thought, well, let's let's see if we can give it a proper go and, and actually market specifically to America. And it was obviously, you know, there were a lot of cliches flying around, oh, British retailers graveyard and, and nobody ever made it work. And so I said, okay, well, let's give it a go. But there are two rules. One is that we have to limit the amount of money we're going to lose. And we we're at that time where we were starting to make a bit of money. And therefore we had, you know, we had a hundred thousand pounds that we could put aside and say, right, we'll invest that. And if it doesn't work, it's not going to bring the business down. And the second rule that I said was, I do not want this to impact on my life too much. I want to be able to carry on with yeah. my job. So for example, we didn't resize the product. It was UK sizing and they had to adapt to that. We could use the same yeah. imagery. So we had a fantastic team who were really pioneering, buccaneering. And I was sort of, you know, dimly aware of what was going on. But I, and I, of course I did visit and I think the the real excitement for me was when I would visit uh, potential customers' houses and you would go to suburbs of um, Los Angeles, Boston, Washington, New Jersey, New York, and you would see Connecticut, you would see these lovely women, and they were basically identical to our UK customers. They were slightly different, but the differences were, were much smaller than the similarities. They had very similar values. They liked Britishness. They liked the values of our business. Mm. They didn't want to have too much fashion, but they wanted to look great. They really valued our honesty and our style, our design. Um, and I thought, crikey, there are, there are 10 times as many of these in the US than there are in the UK. Yeah. So we then played catch up because it was very successful. And it still is. It's our biggest part of the business now. I mean, it, it's even more competitive than the UK. 
Um, but the opportunity, if you get it right, is enormous. The other thing that I think I would recommend is not to spend lots of money on a swanky office out there. There's an awful lot you can do mm. on a shoestring, really. So it's yeah. not as scary as you might think. It's not as scary. I mean, tell me, but am I right in saying, and I obviously pulled this from articles when researching you, but you have a 65% awareness in the UK. Yes. But in the States, it's just 14%. Yes, that's right. Which basically means you've just got a huge yes. world of opportunities yes. there. And is that what America is? If you can break in, is it just the land of opportunity there? Because it is just so much bigger. Yes. I mean, you know, it, it is the biggest economy in the world. They're all basically, that's a, you know, the middle classes, for want of a better phrase, are enormous. They don't have the sort of self-loathing of some of the British people. You know, they're very optimistic mm -hmm. and we're an optimistic brand. But no, they work hard. They work harder than we do. They only take two weeks holiday. They get up earlier. They're more conservative. They go to church. You know, they speak our language, but they're very different in other respects. Mm. They change their clothes more often in the day. They have, because property costs are lower there, they have bigger houses, which means that they have bigger these, what they call it, closets, ah. you know, and they buy more stuff. And yeah, there are lots of them. And your quintessentially British brand, you know, this over the pond, is that the DNA that you have in the US? Is that what they're latching into? Well, that's a good question. And we don't, you know, whenever we've tried to be, whenever we've been really, really explicit, like having, you know, Big Ben and Red Buses and Corgis, they say, oh, that's silly. Okay, It's a subtle point. And I think we sometimes forget it. They are aware of it. But as I said, it is a very competitive market and they are, there are even more brands there trying to break into it. Mm. But no, you're right. They do like it. And we have, you know, we need to dial it up. But sometimes we've had our fingers burnt by trying to dial it up too much in the right way. Yeah. In the right way. So just uh, on this part of America, because I want to talk to you about sort of fast fashion and just mm. th that whole world that we're in. But tell me, if I was a small business, and I have to say, we're in March now as we're recording, this year, more than ever, I have heard small businesses come up to me telling me that they're going to a US trade show, that they are going to the US. And I've actually never in 20 years heard as many people. Yeah. If you were speaking to somebody as a small business, what would be sort of like your top three things? I know one of them would be you don't have to spend a fortune, or do you? I would say don't bet the farm. I mean, if you do it, you must be willing to invest money into it, but have a finite amount in mind. I think, I mean, I always say to any small business or any business, you know, my experience is not necessarily relevant. You know, every business is different. And I think the most important thing is to try several different things and see what works for you. You know, for example, when we set up in America, there were lots of marketing opportunities. There were mailing lists, cold lists, there was PR, they were taking ads in newspapers, you know, certain products sold better there than they did here. And you just have to try things. And one of the great 
benefits of the web is that you can almost no cost you can put something up on the web and see if it works you know if it works then you go for it Mm. but i think don't have a grand plan because it'll almost certainly be wrong it's being nimble and above all listening you know you i think one of the biggest enemies of success is kind of arrogance and not listening to what your customers are saying and if something doesn't sell don't take it personally try something else so I would say yeah, yeah. those sort of simple things. And sorry, really, the, probably the most important thing is having a product or a service that is distinctive, that is different, that people are willing to pay a bit more for. And, you know, that is the most important thing. Everything else is, if it's, a, if it's really good, people will find it. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I think sometimes we do so much on all the other yes. bits and you're like, if your product doesn't stack up, forget anything that you're doing. It's it's all about the product. No disrespect to Tesco's. But when Tesco's launched their uh, grocery stores in the US, the simple fact was people didn't really want that product. And they just carried on, carried yes. on and think, oh, if only we, you know, bigger distribution. and blah, blah, blah. But actually, the simple fact was people didn't really want that product. Yeah. We can miss these things. Yeah. Well, I mean, one can. Tesco shouldn't have missed that, for goodness sake. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, we continue to make a lot of mistakes. And I always say, as long as 51% of your decisions are right, then you're okay. <laughs> but you just have to keep testing and keep failing, really, to oh, get it right. Gosh. Now, tell me, so we're living in this culture, reality TV, We are seeing this growing influence this world is having on fashion. You have clients such as the Princess of Wales, Duchess of Sussex, Bowdoin fans, people who are buying things that you almost look and say, well, these people will be, you know, if we're looking at fame, caring for their clothes, almost the sort of antidote to the celebrity Kardashian sort of world. And fast fashion industry in 2022, just in the UK alone, has been reported to be a staggering £55 billion. Yeah. So tell me this decline of, well, what do you think is happening here? And do we think that the number will start to decline as awareness around sustainability, the environment, social well-being, that Gen Z will start to reject this fast fashion in the future? Well, I mean, it's so depressing because people have been talking about this for 20 years. Have they? And yet, you know, these new brands, which which I remain nameless, have emerged that are so ghastly and people don't care as much as they should do. I mean, you know, I'm probably guilty too in other parts of my life and I try to do the right thing. And as a business, you know, we really do try. We're making significant improvements in the use of recycled fabrics, you know, the Better Cotton Initiative, all our paper is recycled. We've got sort of solar panels everywhere, but we're not perfect, but we are trying. But I'm always amazed when I look at the young, the millennials who make a lot of noise about this, and then they can't resist buying a throwaway dress that Mm. they're going to wear at a party and then throw it away. I mean, I don't know where this goes, but I don't think we're making it, you know, there are the certain groups of society who are very conscientious, but the majority Mm. are not. But I don't want to get in the position where I'm sort of lecturing people because I, you know, almost what's worse than bad ethical behavior is hypocrisy. And a lot of businesses are very guilty of that, you know, the greenwashing 
I remember in my sector in about 20 years, 15 years ago, Marks and Spencer would sort of talk about plan A and, and then somebody pointed out that they're chairman had a private jet and that they kept all the lights on in their headquarters you know 24 hours a day and i think we just have to do our own little bit and let's pray that society follows but i think that you know there are of course there are some improvements but it's just at the the lower priced areas you know there's a lot of disposable behavior yeah absolutely i mean you're not saying the brand but i watched the boohoo documentary on channel four which was all about oh my God. the oh my God. the factories that now should be illegal in china and actually still everyone's working they're in leicester really they're in leicester yeah. i just it is it's shocking when there were those you know the sort of demonstrations and of course, you know, they made many, many good points. But then this sort of hysterics around cancelling historical figures and throwing statues into the river. No, fine. But why don't you confront the slavery that's going on now? Yeah. You know, there is slavery now in sweatshops in this country. Mm. There is slavery in, you know, many parts of the world. And those are the things that people should be, you know, the Uyghurs, the Uyghurs in China are the 3 million people currently enslaved, and they are making products that people are buying now. And, you know, why are people demonstrating about that? I just think people's priorities are slightly skewed. And tell me, do you think that a brand should, in this day and age, you know, I know when I go onto your site, you're encouraging customers to make and mend rather than just buy new clothes. You're doing your bit. It's a journey. It's not a destination. We can't do everything all at once. And that's actually great when people are honest and open about that. But do you think that a a business, Mm -hmm. you know, needs to stand for something in this day and age? You know, when we, you know, not in the high school, Bowdoin, when I started, and I'm not liking myself to you, John, of course I'm not, but I'm just saying we did stand for something, I suppose, because we supported small businesses, but we we didn't hang our hat on that at that stage. It wasn't what you needed to hang your hat on. You didn't need to hang your the brand as something, this brand stands for this. This is the change we're going to make. What do you think about that now in this day and age? Well, first of all, Holly, I'm full of admiration for everything you have done. So thank please you, don't Johnny. do yourself. You've done, you've made a big difference and you've oh, helped so you, many Johnny. people. So coming from you. No, 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 no. You, you're amazing. So don't, my achievements are no way any better than yours. Thank so, you. A. B. I think, yes, I think, you know, you do have to communicate to your customers what you stand for. In the early years, and this is going to sound frightfully pompous, but I always said we we need to do the right thing. We naturally, mm-hmm. we always used factories. We always had quite a big team that would check out the ethics and the environment. You know, we know where we could, we did. But we know we were guilty. I remember there was a particularly lovely shade of really intense blue that some of our cloth suppliers made, and then it was withdrawn because of, you know the dye was really poisonous so you know we made that mistake and there are other areas where i'm sure you know we discovered i mean the real problem is in accessories where it's very hard to monitor every aspect of the supply chain and and there are bits that are Mm. really really difficult and of course i'm always terrified if i make too much of a song and dance you're going to get some journalist who's going to point out to you that there's mm-hmm. you know one of the beads in your shoes were, were made by a mm-hmm. 
underage child. Yeah, I can imagine. And I know that I speak to jewellery designers on this podcast and I speak to many people who are desperately trying to look at their supply chains. They're desperately wanting to track every microscopic moment, but it's very, very difficult to, you know, I'd spoken to Chocolatier only the other week. There's a whole sections of the supply chain that become invisible because... Because hard to trace, it's very not hard to trace where it's created. So it's incredibly difficult. Do you think that you have kept Bowden on track over the years through some of the tougher times by having that sort of the values that you ingrained at the beginning, the vision that you had at the beginning? Do you think yes. that's a rule for you to come back to the basics? I think we do have brand values. We do have some constant, we try to be consistent. And I think people trust us. And I always say that the, for our customers, the kind of ethical aspect is, is a given. It's what I call a hygiene factor. They assume we're going to do it. We put a lot of time and effort into making sure that we do use decent factories and we reduce the amount of damage we do to the planet. I mean, let's be frank, ultimately all economic activity is in some way harmful Mm -hmm. to the planet. And it's just a question of doing less. So we do behave well, but I don't want to make too much of a song and dance simply because Mm. I can't guarantee every single aspect. And there was that famous, uh, many documentaries, but two stuck in my mind where a journalist cleverly got into some factories in, I think it was Bangladesh, and pointed out, and I won't mention any names, that some of our major high streets were using this factory. And of course, you put it to the factory owner, and he would say, prove it. And in third world countries, a lot of people working in factories, they don't have birth certificates, they don't have Mm. passports. So it then becomes libelous. You know, you then say X company is using underage labor, and you know, you can't prove it. Mm. I think when you're paying three pounds for a pair of jeans. What do you think? You kind of think, hold on a minute, how much is that person being paid? Four cents, probably, or something like that. And that's on us, right? That's on us. I think, Johnny, you know, there's what you can do as a business owner, and then there's what I can do as a customer. And what I can do as a customer is I can vote with my money, I can make intelligent decisions, and I can back brands that I think that there is a founder and a group of people in that company who are trying to do better on a constant level. And I think that's what we can ask. And this sort of black and whiteness of you're either good or you're bad, I actually can't bear because it's it's about the grey. I am talking to a converted audience here about the incredible impact women can have on the world. I know this. You're already with me in leading the way so that other women can follow in our footsteps to build a life doing what they love. But how many big brands can you think of that are genuinely making a positive and significant impact in the world of women? I don't know about you, but I am hard pushed to count many, which when you really think about it, is staggering. It's why I'm so proud to partner with Avon, who from day one have championed women, not as an afterthought or when it suits the societal agenda, but every single day since its inception. To date, they've donated over $1 billion to tackle breast cancer and domestic violence worldwide. The incredible impact they have made in the world of women and continue to make is nothing short of inspirational. 
So if you'd like to learn more about Avon or doing beauty your own way by building your very own business as an Avon rep, whether that's selling online or face-to-face, head over to holly.co forward slash Avon. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. Tell me what discipline it takes to buck trends and defy fashion fads. Do you need to just be, you know, do you get ever allured by things that you sort of think you shouldn't? Of course, of course. And, <laughs> and and there are things that we try and they don't work. But ultimately, we do um, follow fashion up to a point. If there's a trend for wide leg trousers yes. or mini skirts or away from dresses, you know, of course, we need to be aware of those because the last thing our customers want to be accused of is being unfashionable, frumpy. Yeah. We just need to do the the fashion in our own way. But the most important thing is that the clothes flatter, that when our customers put them on, they feel better for it. They feel, I mean, I always say, when I'm in the design room and we're looking at clothes and we have a couple of models and they come out of the changing room with the product, and you can tell by not just what I feel when I look at them, but also the way they behave. Really? Yeah. You know, because, I mean, you know what it's like, Holly. Yeah, I do. The right clothes are transformative. You know, you just think, oh, I feel really great in this. It's like Sophie, my wife, you know, she's, she doesn't listen to what I say. It's what, how she feels when she, when she looks at herself in the mirror. And changes again. Looking at my watch and I've got her bike out of the bike shed and, (laughs) you know, we're late and I'm, the dog is barking and it's just and really annoying. <laughs> I just can imagine that tension. It's just too funny. But but it's, it's important for her. You know, she she will have a better evening when yes. she feels she's wearing the right she clothes. She feels a million pounds. Yeah. And yes. tell me, 32 years in, um, I think it is, isn't it? And I see yes. founders basically fall in and out of love with their businesses. And I think a lot of people they lose their passion and they might need to reignite it. Has this ever happened to you? Have you had, obviously the business and what's happening in the business will affect you. How do you keep your actual love alive? I think in my case, I've noticed a lot of people, founders who have stopped doing it and I look at them and I I often wonder, are they happy mm. in their post business life and the answer is not necessarily yes they they're sort of going on more holidays and they're probably drinking more and they're having longer lunches and they're spending money on tat mm-hmm. and probably putting on weight not that i can talk. i know what you mean so i look at other people so that's a rather sort of glib way of looking at it but also from my point of view i think if I could find something else that I'd really enjoyed as much, if not more, then that would be appealing. But I, to be frank, I, I don't want to be a politician. I don't want to be a farmer. I don't want to run. I'm very happy to give money to charity. I don't want to be involved in the running of a charity. I don't want to set up another business because I think I'd cock it up. I think my skills are very, very narrow, actually. 
And, you know, the great thing about this business or any business is that you're constantly having to reinvent yourself. And also, probably the most important thing is whenever I spend more than a week at home with Sophie, she gets so fed up with me that she can't wait for you to go back to work. And like the idea of me having, spending, you know, more than two weeks at home with her and I'd have to, yeah. oh, it'd be a nightmare. You it know. would be. I love what you've just said there. But there are, there are moments where you, you yeah. know, you do get a bit yeah. bored and you make mistakes. But actually, that's where I was. I said at the beginning, you know, that partly because you've, you know, you've got the the structure of the business wrong, and you you need to make sure that you're doing the bits that you're good at and that you really enjoy, and you're the boss. Totally, and I think that there's the point you make. So if you weren't doing this, you've fallen out for your business. So if you weren't doing this, what were you going to do? You you need to make a living. So what is it? And if there is other things, then potentially, actually, you should have maybe been incorporating that into your world or life anyway. But if you are doing what you love, truly, then there are just going to be bloody low lows and highs and all the rest of it. Yes. But actually never to think Absolutely. that you're on the wrong path. It's just the roller coaster that we're on and and not to give up because of that. And I think that's such a great point because I know a lot of people as well who've potentially come out of their businesses and everything you've just said, I would have said as well, the health, it becomes about spending, it becomes about filling the hole that your love and your passion used to fill. And now there's not anything to have that. You know, you don't have that anchor anymore. And we must make sure we remember that, that it can be your anchor. You mentioned your girls and you mentioned that whiteboard. You have three gorgeous daughters that are now more grown up than when we last spoke. And am I right in saying, was a teacher, a knitwear graduate and a politics student? Am I right in that? Yes, they've moved on a bit. But just sort of going back to what you said earlier, just I would completely agree that there are times when I really don't enjoy my job, you know, but I think that's no different to any, if I moved jobs, it wouldn't be any better. Yes. And I think one thing that I have learned is that you need to have little triggers is a rather loaded word, but little activities which revive your interests. In my case, I think if you spend too long in the office, you become a bit inward looking and actually just getting out there. People say, oh God, your job's great. So all you do is go shopping. I mean, I love going to vintage fairs and, and other cities around the world. And that can very quickly, I, mean, I was in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, which is a very, I love LA. And that kind of really got me excited. And there was a, you know, and there are other yes. things, speaking to customers, you know, there are all sorts of things, you know, there are so many parts of one's job that sometimes you feel a bit flat because you're just doing one particular bit too long. You need to take a Barocca, you know, it's like taking a Barocca. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's yes. the Barocca? You need yes. that little pot of Barocca. Yeah. And when you get flat, what yeah. are you going to pop in your glass? It could be LA for you, yes. but it could be talking to a customer. It could be going to a, a museum. Or just sitting anything. in your office and just turning up the music really loud, you know, for a couple of hours, listening to some really great music. I remember when I came to interview you, you had rave music on when I walked in. It freaked me oh, out. I'm a bit tragic, you know, 61 and still listening to rave music. <laughs> no, it yeah, was yeah. five years ago, you see. You were you were in your 50s then. You can do these sorts of things. But, you know, what's one of the nice things about having three daughters is they're constantly giving you good music ideas. So tell me about your daughters. So to come back to your question. So yeah, and are they going to follow in your footsteps ever? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I'd like it, but there's no pressure much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My eldest daughter, Anna, is she was a teacher and she's now working with an extreme holiday adventure business, which she's very excited about. She loves the outdoors. She's frightfully bossy. She got slightly disillusioned by teaching. She didn't get two promotions she went for. And she has found this fantastic job, which she's really enjoying working with two rather eccentric army officers who take high net worth people to the South Pole and other places. She's about to meet some rather interesting people who have sort of household names who who like doing these rather bonkers trips. But that's her thing. She did an amazing ride over South America last year, horse race, 300 mile, which she won. And she loves all that kind of stuff. I'm so suburban. I you know one night in a tent is quite enough for me. Um, So that's her. And then Katie, my middle daughter, She's got a very good eye. She worked here as a sort of doing an internship. And now she is doing a fashion course. She's doing a technical fashion course in Paris, which she's loving and learning a lot. And poor thing, she hurt her knee last week skiing. And so she's a bit sorry for herself, but she's really doing an amazing job. She was really, you know, historically very impractical. And now she's really, we found in her flat in Paris, a mastic gun. She's actually was doing the tiles in her, which was a major breakthrough. (laughs) And Stella... My youngest left Bristol last year and she had a pretty rubbish time at yes, university. Of I, mean, I think of all the, I mean, being in the hospitality industry or hospital, there are lots, there are lots of jobs that were really rubbish during COVID. But I think being a, a student was particularly, I felt so sorry for people who were meant to be having the time of their lives and they were stuck in Absolutely. the, you know, oh, ghastly. So she's having a little bit of time off. She's in South America. She worked in customer services. She's very hardworking. She saved up some money and I topped it up and she's now larking around in Chile. I think she's got to Bolivia. She's quite clever. She's quite careful budgeting on on buses and hostels. And I think she she is the most entrepreneurial of my children. She might she loves the city. She might go and work in the city. She's very very materialistic. She loves spending money. We you know always likes the sort of grooviest trainers, and her cupboards are full of you know <laughs> rubbish. Basically. Wonder where she gets that from. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that's too much information. Johnny, I could talk to you all day. You're one of my most favourite people yeah. on this planet, honestly. And oh, well, you're very sweet. You're very kind. You're a wonderful inspiration. You say that to everybody. No, I, I'm I sure, don't. But... I don't say it. And as I was saying to you and to those listening, you know, conversations of inspiration is now on BA. So if you sit up in the sky, you can tune in. And Johnny and my conversation in 2018 is one of those episodes. So we we are up in the sky, Johnny. I, I asked you last time I to read wait. a letter to your younger self. And I'm not going to ask you this this time, but I did want to ask you two pieces, two things, actually. What is a single most valuable piece of advice that you've ever received? Um, I think I have a coach and we've had a difficult time recently and we had a bit of a hiccup on our top management team, which didn't work out a couple of people. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand it better. And this lovely girl, Annie, always says to me, you can never know enough about yourself or other people. Mm. Wow. 
I think it sounds a bit heavy. No, it's but brilliant. it is. You know, there are a lot of bullshitters out there. A lot of people who you think are amazing, and you need. I think particularly when hiring people, you need to know absolutely everything about them, because I have been this particular hiccup. It just it just didn't work out. But you know, there have been many other instances in my mm. business career where I have been, I've been defrauded. Yes. I've been nearly hired people who it transpired were total rotters. Somebody threatened to take me to court, accuse me of something of which I wasn't guilty. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there who aren't totally right. And if you can winkle that information out from their ex-colleagues, there's a lot you can know about people. And also your own behavior. You know, I am guilty of quite a few things. In my case, I'm a people pleaser. And I sometimes allow that to cloud my instinct because I don't want to cause a fuss or I'm being a bit lazy. And if you can check yourself, people say check your privilege, check your behavior. Why am I, I shouldn't have done that. I should have said, no, this isn't good enough. And allied to which, I'm cheating with the two things. The other thing that I am very guilty of as a people pleaser is defending myself, explaining things, saying sorry. And I've learned just as you don't have to give an explanation for everything. Just say, I'm really sorry, that's a no end of Mm. and uh, you know the more you start explaining the weaker you sound and sometimes you have to be quite strong so I'm terribly sorry no yeah and enjoy the silence absolutely less is more which is very hard for somebody like me yeah no me too my mother my mother (laughs) effectively said darling if there's a silence fill it (laughs) (laughs) and you've taken that on for 60 years and the other question is what do you now feel you know for sure uh, you're either in or you're out. Mm. Yeah. You notice the silence, Holly? I do. And look, I went to fill it. Are you using I went that to silence? Fill it. But then this is a podcast, so I probably shouldn't just land on silence. Johnny, as ever, thank you. So much wisdom that we've packed into an hour. I would love to see you soon. I would love to revisit. I hope I'm still doing this in five years' time that we could do it again. And we could have learned many more things yes. that you've gone through. But for now, Johnny, as ever, you're a great inspiration for us all. I hope you just keep going, keep flying that flag. And you've got a big fan in, in me. Well, Holly, you're always lovely to talk. You're always very nice to me. And don't forget, you are a great inspiration to many, many people. And I hats off to you for everything you've achieved. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 